Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. Today I am talking with Dr Calvin Lightbody. Now Calvin was a few years ahead of me at Queen's University in Belfast and he's been an emergency medicine consultant since 2009 working at the Hare Myers Hospital in NHS Lanarkshire. But he's also had a long-standing interest in end-of-life care, which prompted him to take the European Certificate of Essential Palliative Care at the Northern Ireland Hospice in 2015. And then he spent six months working with the palliative care team in Glasgow Royal Infirmary. He was part of the team that developed the hospital anticipatory care plan for patients who are nearing the end of life. And it was an absolute pleasure to discuss this topic with him, uh, something that he's very passionate about and I think something that's very important. So I hope you enjoy Today we are speaking with Dr. Calvin Lightbody, who has very kindly come round to my house to record this podcast. I think this might be the first podcast we've done in my house, which is very exciting. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Lightbody. Uh, thank you, <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for the invitation along this morning. Oh, it's uh, good my to be absolute here. pleasure. So, we're 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 going to talk about a very light-hearted topic. And that is dying in the emergency department or the passage of dying patients through the emergency department, we should say. So quite a lot to get through. I know you're very passionate about it and I'm very excited to have this topic because it's a topic that I don't think we talk about very often. Mm, That's true. I think we could all benefit from a little bit more refinement in how we you know manage these situations mm-hmm. so so i'm very excited so thank you very much for coming so first of all i thought i would just ask why is this topic so important well i i think Owen, for for me just uh my own background my own last few years of experience what i've seen is a is a trend where we're seeing more and more patients coming through the emergency department who maybe aren't exactly dying in front of us but are certainly approaching the end of life that might be in the last days to weeks of life and I think there, there there's needs to be a change in how we approach these patients. We think we need to get better at recognising when a patient's perhaps nearing the end of life, not necessarily dying imminently, but approaching the end of life. So what is the reason for that? Is it predominantly it's just the ageing population or are there other contributing factors to that? I mean, certainly the ageing population is a significant part of it. Uh, We've known about the fact that we've got a growing ageing population in the UK for quite some time. But I think it's important to add to that the fact that the ageing population that we have are also a population that have got multiple morbidities. It's it's perhaps more common now for an elderly patient to have not just one or two morbidities but five six maybe seven comorbidities and that presents a particular challenge to the health service i think it's perhaps interesting to also add that a study by a guy called professor david clark at the university of glasgow found that in the inpatient population in all acute hospitals like the ones we work in about one in three of the inpatients are in the last year of their life and furthermore, about 1 in 10 patients who are admitted to the hospital will die during that admission or shortly after it. And many of those patients will have passed through RED uh, en route to being an inpatient. And I think the fact that we need to recognise that there's a, a you know, substantial number of these patients that are approaching the end of life that pass through our care as part of their hospital journey. So that would probably lead us nicely into our next question, which is recognising dying in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably going to self-confess a little bit that um, I'm I'm probably better at it, I assume, you know, with experience than I used to be. But I do remember a number of times in my career where I would be surprised at how colleagues would be able to or very quickly come to the decision that that patient Mm -hmm. is dying. And I don't know if I'm just an eternal optimist and I always think, oh, 
you know, maybe there's something we can do to make to turn this situation around. Mm-hmm. So how do we do it? Is is it something you can teach? Is it just experience or, or what what would you recommend is the is the best ways to, 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 to know when someone is dying? Well, I think first of all it's important to recognise that recognising dying is difficult. It's uh, notoriously difficult to predict. There isn't a simple test that you can apply. I mean there isn't a like a, a blood test that you can do. There's no definite physiological parameter that points towards the dying process. I think you're quite right to say, though, it's something that you get better with experience when you recognise that a patient might be approaching the end of life. I think perhaps more important than recognising the imminence of dying is recognising when a patient's on what I would describe an end-of-life trajectory. What's the context to this patient's presentation? How have things been going for this patient, say, in the last few months? How are they now compared to three, six months ago? And what is the direction that this patient is going? Are they, in fact, approaching the end of life? Uh, the patient who's imminently dying might be more easy to recognise. Uh, again, with experience, you might see some of the clues that would point towards that. Maybe it is physiological parameters. Maybe it's just the overall appearance of the patient. Maybe it's the context of the illness that they have, perhaps like a, an advanced malignancy or an extremely frail and dependent patient. But I think just to, to summarise there, recognising dying is notoriously difficult, but certainly gets easier with experience. But I think more important then is recognising the context of this patient's presentation. So I thought we would talk about DNA CPR forms, if that's okay. I know that um, is fairly controversial, is that fair to say? Yeah, some people so. believe strongly in them, some people believe strongly mm-hmm. against them. Mm-hmm. So what in your eyes are the main issues with them? I think it's just useful to establish what DNA CPR is. First of all, uh, do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So CPR works whenever you've got the sudden cessation of cardiac output, such as happens in a a VF arrest. But let's think about the normal natural dying process for a second. In, In normal dying, the heart stops last. So brain, kidney, lung function all gradually stop and then the heart stops last. So CPR in that situation where a patient's dying naturally has got no chance of success and it's completely inappropriate. So to talk about a procedure which has got no chance of success in a dying patient is fraught with difficulty. My main concern, however, with DNA CPR is the misunderstanding that comes with DNA CPR. Often patients are labelled DNA CPR and maybe considered as a euphemism for dying. There's good evidence now that patients who have a DNA CPR can have their care limited in some way and they mightn't get other care that they might need because they have a DNA CPR. And I think there's a problem with that in terms of misunderstanding, not just by by medical staff, but you can see clearly that there's a, a misapprehension about DNA CPR in the wider community as well. So what about the, the patient who has a DNA CPR form coming to the resource room? I've seen that frustrate some people they clearly feel that that's not an appropriate use of the resource room or a triage one category mm-hmm. do you have a strong opinion on that yeah i can very much relate to that uh, in my own practice in my own department i mean i think it's worth just rewinding a wee bit and think about how did that patient end up in in resource perhaps that patient is coming to the end of their life and they're experiencing some symptoms like severe pain respiratory distress or, or what have you and the paramedics are called to the patient and 
what do they do? They need to instigate some treatment. They need to get the patient to hospital where they can get further treatment. And remember, DNA CPR is just about CPR. It doesn't mention anything to do with previous treatments up until the point of CPR. So the paramedics bring, take the patient to hospital and that patient still has care needs that we need to be able to address in A&E. And we shouldn't have a, a pejorative view on a patient who has a DNA CPR. We still need to assess that patient, think about the context of their presentation and think, what can we do for this patient? They're still deserving of our care, regardless of any label or euphemism that might have been applied to them. So what would you put in its place? I think we've spoken about DNA CPR having its limitations. What would be the, a more optimal kind of form or approach um, to this situation? I think an individualised plan for the patient, which outlines the ceilings of their treatment or their treatment escalation limitation. Uh, something that describes the circumstance the patient is in just now. What is appropriate for that patient is one, and what is also inappropriate in terms of escalation of their care, and that needs to be done on an individual basis uh, for each patient in the in the context of the presentation that we're dealing with in front of us in A and E. And I've seen that you have a, a the hospital anticipatory care plan That's in right. your in your. Is that widely known? Is that a common practice in the UK or? It's uh, it's common where I work in NHS Lanarkshire. I've been part of the team that's led to the development of uh, hospital anticipatory care plans and the the version of HACP that we use in in A and E was uh, was part of the project that I've worked on. So for the last couple of years now, uh, where I work. Patients who are nearing the end of life don't just get a DNA CPR. They get a hospital anticipatory care plan that's individualised for them, which outlines what is appropriate in terms of escalation for them, but also documents what is considered inappropriate and might be considered also futile for that patient or perhaps burdensome on them. Uh, it also gives an opportunity to discuss what the patient's care needs might be. Perhaps that patient or their family have wishes that might need to be respected at this time. Well, we'll put um, some links in the show notes and we'll maybe even put in one of the forms okay. so people can see if they're not as familiar with them. Okay, so we've identified the dying patient. What do we do now? Let, let's maybe start with what are the common failures? What are the things that we maybe don't do so well mm -hmm. currently? And then we'll talk about what the optimum way sure, to do it sure. is. I think it's maybe worth thinking about what is a bad death. What, what results in a bad death for the patient? And a bad death happens whenever we don't recognise the patient's dying and we persist with treatment or investigations and procedures and so forth that are ultimately futile and don't change the management, don't change the outcome for the patient. So a bad death happens whenever doctors are present rather than the family being present, whenever we don't provide sufficient dignity for the patient as they near the end of life. So a patient who's having blood gases done, having an NIV mask put on their face, perhaps being cared for by a nurse that they've never met and don't know their name, th those things all contribute to a bad death. And if we can try and avoid those things uh, by avoiding the over-treatment and over-investigation of patients who are near the end of life, and also avoiding the under-treatment, avoiding not addressing the patient's palliative care needs as they approach the end of life. So let's... This is obviously a big question. <laughs> We're going to try and maybe break it down into some constituent components, but let, let's try and, and frame what would be the 
kind of the optimum mm-hmm. way to 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 facilitate death in a patient in your eyes mm-hmm. is there any way that you could um kind of frame that yeah I, I think the the most important thing to do is to recognize that the patient's dying and they recognize the need for a different approach a dying patient is not served well by medical protocols by interventions by the next treatment a patient who's dying needs a different approach which recognizes that they're dying and we then adopt a more palliative approach and by a palliative approach i mean that we're taking into account the patient's holistic needs but by talking about holistic needs i mean the patient has physical needs they have psychological social and spiritual needs as well and we need to address all of those things Uh, but we can only address those things properly as i say once we recognize that the patient's dying and we step away from that fix it curative model used with every other patient that comes in. Okay, so if you don't mind, let's go through some of those individual needs, if that's okay, Mm -hmm. just to pick Mm -hmm. out some kind of learning points Mm -hmm. that we can hopefully adopt into our practice. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about physical, first of all. I think most important, perhaps, is trying to get the patient into uh, an environment where there's some peace and dignity. And that's very difficult in the emergency department, generally speaking. But if there's a side room available or somewhere quieter to move the patient to, that would be the first step. I then see about making sure that we've discontinued any unnecessary observations or, or treatments and that the, the patient's no longer being monitored because we're not going to, to address those physiological changes anymore. Then let's think about what are the physical symptoms that a patient has as they near the end of life and the common symptoms that a patient who's dying might experience, but not certainly always. Those symptoms would be pain, shortness of breath, secretions and distress and we need to address each of those and the best thing to do in the situation is to prescribe anticipatory medications that will address each of those symptoms so first of all pain i would write up an anticipatory medication uh, for morphine two milligrams to be given either intravenously or subcutaneously for pain on a prn basis on a one hourly prn basis for shortness of breath i would prescribe midazolam two milligrams, again, either intravenous or subcutaneously to be given hourly as required for agitation. For secretions, and by that I mean the often noisy secretions that accumulate in the oropharynx as a, as a patient is dying, and the, the useful thing to use there is hyacine butyl bromide, and that's 20 milligrams, again, subcutaneously or intravenously, four hourly as required. For nausea, I would prescribe levomepromazine, and that's 2.5 milligrams, Again, intravenous or subcutaneously given for nausea. The last thing I would write up is haloperidol, one milligram, again on a PRN basis, which helps with any agitation that might happen as the patient nears the end of life. Once you've written up those anticipatory medications, you know that whatever physical symptom that patient might encounter, that there's something that can be done about it. And again, it focuses that we're still doing something for this patient. When you recognise a patient's dying, you're not doing nothing. You are actually focusing on what those symptoms might be. And you mentioned a couple of other needs, such as spiritual and otherwise. Can you mm-hmm. touch on those sure. as well? So the patient might have psychological needs. And again, that comes down to things like what's distressing the patient. Is there anything that they're afraid of? Is there maybe any unresolved issues that might be causing them concern? Uh Social issues, you know, who, who do they want there? What family do they want to be present at this time? And we need to try and do everything we can to ensure that those needs are met. 
and also spiritual care. I mean, spiritual care is not just about religion. I mean, no, certainly in the in the west of Scotland, we always think about, oh, do we need to get the priest in? Uh, but there's a lot more to spiritual care than that. It might just be things that the patient will gain comfort from. And we won't know about those things unless we ask about it. So trying to think about the patient's psychological, social and spiritual needs as well, I think is, is important at this time. And I accept that's maybe something that doesn't necessarily come comfortably to us. But addressing those things, as I say, makes it a lot more likely that the patient will have a dignified death at the end. So I was curious to find out what your approach is to discussing dying in the emergency department, raising these forms, discussing the, the, the completion of these forms and discussing the, the, the pathway of the patient. Mm-hmm. Have you any mm-hmm. tips on, on how you approach that with patients yes. and families? Yes. Uh, uh, I spent six months working with the palliative care team in Glasgow Royal Infirmary and really learned a lot uh, then about how to approach these often difficult conversations. And I guess like anything else, the more times that you do it, the more comfortable it becomes. And there's certainly an inherent discomfort with addressing dying and being honest and saying that maybe there isn't anything more you can do. But I've found that having these conversations now is very rewarding. And I'll I'll just start off by saying I think the best thing to do is to speak to the patient if possible, but certainly to their family and check what is your understanding of what's happening? How have things been going recently? What's been happening in recent times? How are things now compared to three, six months ago? I think that's really important to, to start. I then follow it up by asking what's important to you? What matters to you? What are the things that are important for your life? however long you have left and again that's been a very you know revealing question to ask patients and in my experience patients generally know when they're approaching the end of life their family have a good idea when they're approaching the end of life and they they really welcome a doctor asking about that and not just telling them about the next investigation the next procedure the next treatment that's going to happen they value that i then follow it up by asking about what are your fears? Is there anything that you're worried about? Is there anything that's concerning you about your care just now? And I think those conversations are much easier when you frame it in that way, when you have an approach that explores understanding priorities and fears. It makes it a much easier conversation to have. I then followed up by saying, look, we're not going to be thinking about prolonging life here or, or, or doing the next test, the next investigation. We very much want to now focus on dignity on symptom control and doing the best to make sure that you are not suffering or your loved one is not suffering at this time and you know people really value that they really appreciate that honesty and they appreciate that realistic approach to dying so we like to ask our audience for questions Mm -hmm. this is often how we finish off these podcasts if that's okay yeah so um first question comes from alistair ireland who I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. um, he says, is it sometimes too soon to establish ceiling of treatment in the ED, given that we've often just met the patient? So what checks and balances should we use to avoid overdiagnosis of impending death? I don't think it's ever too early to establish uh, a plan for the patient. Uh, and that plan might be that this patient is for full escalation. I don't think it's ever too early to think about that and it's never too early, I think, to discuss with the patient and try and get an idea of what their understanding is and what their priorities are and what the goals of care should be. The uncertainty 
about the imminence of dying, I think, is what, what leads to the, the, the problem that Alistair's mentioning there. So I, I think if we try and accept that there is uncertainty, but accept also that the inevitability of death is on the horizon and that we need to address that and discuss it and have an honest and realistic conversation. And I think the earlier the better. As I said before, the decisions that are made in the ED are dynamic and they can change as this patient situation changes. So in, in short, no, I don't think it's ever too early to have a conversation about the patient's understanding, expectation and goals of care, even if that means that you say that this patient's for full escalation at this time, but that might change. I guess perhaps part of that was the fear that you get it wrong. You know, that, that you, you, you presume someone's on that pathway, but they're not. Yeah. And yeah. um, so is it something that should be done by the most senior person available, I presume? Yes, I, I think a decision about treatment escalation limitation should be done by the most senior doctor in the department who's got the experience of dealing with these situations and, and can make that decision. It should be a senior decision, certainly. But a junior doctor should still, I think, do some prompting, do some recognition yeah. and maybe start the ball rolling whenever they recognise that a patient's dying. In my department, the, the trainees all receive you know, some induction on this and they've had a bit of an understanding how these things work. And it's been really rewarding in, in recent times to see trainees approaching me and say, I think this patient needs a, a hospital anticipatory care plan. And we discuss the patient and yes, certainly uh, we can we can make a difference there. So yes, it needs to be a senior decision, uh, but certainly trainees can start the ball rolling. Killian Hooper asks, can we teach nursing home staff to make the diagnosis and avoid admission? Because you, you often see, and I think what, what he means is there are people that get frustrated. Oh, I can't believe they sent that patient in. They're mm -hmm. dying. Mm -hmm. But I've always felt that's a huge call. And it might be part of the fact that I alluded right at the beginning of the podcast that I have at times felt it's a hard diagnosis to make. I felt uncomfortable making the diagnosis of death. I, I have this eternal optimism. Well, maybe there's something we can do to turn mm -hmm. the situation mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. So that would be a big call for our nursing home staff. Yes. So can you teach people or... What would be the best way to address that particular issue, do you think? It's a, it's a great question. We're actually doing something along those very lines currently in NHS Lanarkshire. There's a training programme happening just now. Uh, there's a palliative care nurse going around all the nursing homes in, in Lanarkshire to try and talk about the end-of-life care planning and how to try and minimise the chance of a patient being brought to the emergency department. And that involves getting GPs on board and involves... Uh, just trying to get the nursing home staff to be a bit more confident in dealing with patients as they approach end of life. So I always like to ask one wee question to everyone um, at the very end, and that is if we could take you back in time to your junior self. Mm -hmm. And it, this doesn't have to be a palliative care related thing, but it can be if you wish. But what, what one or two bits of advice would you give your junior self starting out? What have you gained in your experience that would have been of value to you right at the beginning? I guess if sticking on on the same theme, I would have developed this as a as an interest much earlier in my career. I, I've been interested in care of, of dying patients right from when I was a junior doctor, and I felt this frustration that the current medical model of trying to fix everyone every time really just doesn't work and doesn't solve serve these patients very well. I think I would maybe just start this interest much earlier rather than a a slightly grisly. <laughs> <laughs> old consultant that I am now uh, that yeah I think I would have started it a lot earlier 
And finally, is there any way you would like to kind of summarise this podcast or any little kind of take-home points that you would like to leave our listeners with? I think that what I would want to, to, to leave our listeners with is just a, a reminder that in emergency medicine, we are really well-placed to deliver good care for patients who are near the end of life. We have the skill set, we have the attitude and approach that good care for these patients needs. I think we'll serve their care much better than many other specialties. And I would like to remind people that however frustrating and difficult this might be, that if you provide the circumstances that can lead to a good death for your patient, you'll have done your job right and you'll have done it well. Well, I think that's a good place to finish. So, um, Dr. Lightbody, thank Calvin. you, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> I feel old. Uh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I really, very much appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you this morning. Cheers. Thank you. So many, many thanks for listening and a huge thank you to Calvin for that very insightful interview. Um, there was a lot of information there and we'll try and condense it all and put it in the show notes. But thinking about the main take-home points for me, I think number one, recognising dying is difficult but gets better with experience. But more importantly is recognising the end-of-life trajectory. So consider the context of the presentation and what direction the patient has been going on over the past few months. Number two, it is important to recognise dying to prevent harm to the patient, so we want to avoid unnecessary tests and investigations and to ensure they are on the right care pathway. Number three, DNA CPRs have only one single purpose. Um, they are often misunderstood and care can be limited as a result. What would be more beneficial is a hospital anticipatory care pathway which prompts the healthcare staff to address the appropriate and inappropriate needs for that patient. Number four, to facilitate a dignified and comfortable death, healthcare staff should address the physical, psychological, social and spiritual needs of the patient. And number five, when you're opening a conversation with patients and family members regarding end-of-life care, Remember the following, what is their understanding, what is important to them and what are their fears. Many, many thanks again for listening. Please visit the show notes for a, an extended summary of, of the, the main points from this conversation. Huge thank you to Dr. Calvin Lightbody again. Many thanks to you for listening and take care. Take care.